Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of The Julia LaRoche Show. I am so pleased to bring to you this conversation with Peter Cicchini, Director of Research at Exonic Capital, a hedge fund with $4.5 billion in assets under management. Peter looks after the firm's macro strategy. So in this conversation, we got his macroeconomic outlook. We also delved into why he is in the recession camp and why he sees a recession coming by year end. We also explored some of the vulnerabilities that Peter is seeing, especially in the high yield market, as well as the opportunities that he's waiting to capitalize on when a recession comes. I really enjoyed this conversation with Peter. I learned a lot from him, and I think you will too. Peter Cicchini, Director of Research at Exonic Capital, which is a hedge fund with $4.5 in AOM. It is so great to see you again, and it's great to welcome you on the show, Peter. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Julia. Great to see you. Well, it is so great to see you. And I miss our old interviews back when I was at Yahoo Finance. So it was so great to have you on my podcast. And I want to start where I always start with my guest, and that is the macro view. What is the you know, macro picture for you today? I'll give you some time to set the table, if you will. Yes, um, it, it is a it is a particularly interesting environment coming out of uh, massive stimulus um, due to the pandemic, obviously, just under seven trillion, arguably, arguably a little bit more. Um, and it put the U.S. consumer in the catbird seat. And what I mean by that is, you know, direct deposits into people's checking accounts allowed them to repair their credit um, and to generate uh, excess savings that they hadn't had in, in in some time, and you know we're sort of seeing that right now. Up until really quite recently, um, the consumer has been pretty resilient, uh, but now we're starting to see drawdowns on credit cards. Um, we're seeing a tick up in installment loans, and you know, and and savings have dropped now well below pre-pandemic levels. We just look at uh, household savings, which is a readily available sort of first order statistic on how consumers um, have have their savings position. So we remain as we have been uh, for some time in the year end sort of recession camp. Um, that has not manifest yet because employment has remained relatively strong. Um, but we are seeing sort of three three things that lead us to that conclusion. The, the first is the second derivative of employment trends. And the Consumer Board has a really interesting index called the, the uh, Consumer Board Employment Trend Index, um, is, is rolling over uh, in a way that you really don't see unless it's followed by a recession. Um, the yield curve obviously has been inverted now uh, twos to tens since uh, March uh, of last year um, and three month to 10 year in October. So the yield curve is also signaling um, recession. And related to that, but somewhat independent are lending standards. And lending standards are about as tight, uh, close to 50%, uh, it's actually over 50% now given the last sluice print of lenders um, surveyed by the Fed and their senior loan officer survey have indicated that they're tightening lending standards. And that's across the board, not only for commercial real estate, but also um, for auto loans, for uh, consumer loans, uh, you name it, and to, and to companies as well. So those three things sort of form the pillar and the foundation for our cautious uh, stance. 
Um, and we really believe that it's simply a matter of time, a matter of when rather than rather than if. And that's been our view for some time. You know, it's interesting with the consumer side of things, because I don't know about you. I kind of feel like this summer has almost been like the YOLO summer um, from the consumer's perspective. When you look back, I don't know if you I take you look at economic history. Is that pretty standard you know, leading into a recession to kind of see that behavior from consumers? Sure is. Yeah. Um, the American consumer is resilient. And, you know, the the adage is, you know, never bet against the American consumer. And I think that's usually a, a pretty a pretty good thing not to do. Uh, but the consumer usually spends until the consumer can no longer spend. And that comes from sort of the embedded optimism um, that we all have and, uh, you know, about, about the opportunities this country afford. Um, but at some point when, uh, real wages are not providing the impetus for spending, which they're not right now, um, they did actually just go positive for the first time in about two years on their last print, but they're not particularly strong. Um, and when the consumer has to rely on credit and, uh, employment's about as good as it gets um, without real wage growth. It, it it gives us serious concern. And look, we're seeing it in in the rate of change and delinquencies and defaults for consumers. Now, they're only just back to pre-pandemic levels, but they've gotten there very, very quickly over the past six months or so. Yeah. One of the things that's been perplexing to me, at least, has been um, not just the resiliency in the economy, but also, just the markets this year, um, specifically equity markets. What do you make of what's been transpiring in the markets? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. I think a lot of people have 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 that very question, or sort of uh, as perhaps as confounded as as uh, I don't want to speak for you, but as, as it sounds like you and I are. Um, you know these these sorts of of reactions by the equity markets and and the narratives in the equity market. Um, never cease to surprise and amaze. If you take a step back and you look at the sort of transitory versus persistent inflation narrative, right? Equity markets took the Fed's take, right? It's it's going to be transitory. By the way, that, that the whole transitory versus persistent, um, you know, sort of lexicon was wrong to begin with. Inflation is always transitory. It either it's either killed by a central bank or it kills itself because the economy falls off a cliff, right? But, but the fact that the Fed said it was tran so transitory, it wasn't going to have to act, it, it took, the equity markets took that at face value for a very, very long time. And it took about six or seven months uh, for, you know, even the rates markets. The rates markets, you remember the two-year was, you know, was 20 or 30 basis points uh, for a very long time uh, into the end of 2021, it started to move. Um, and then the equity market started to de-risk you know, early last year, um, after a pretty strong rally, so it, it it takes time for narratives to shift and to change, and that's particularly true of late. When uh, most recently, about thirteen or fourteen percent of the volume on U.S. equity exchanges are is retail investors, and it's it's um, very much no longer a the equity markets are very much a sort of everyman market. It, they have been democratized, and so I think. You know, narratives that otherwise might be considered spurious by professional investors are sort of bought into by retail, and and retail provides the marginal bid for equities. And so, for that reason, it's not all that surprising that equity markets 
um, you know, have rallied. And 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 when you combine that with just how bearish sentiment was uh, towards the end of last year, um, it you you sort of you had to come to the to the to the conclusion that it wasn't going to take a heck of a lot to get equity markets to rally. And you know, in fact, we we felt they would rally. We just didn't think they would rally to forty six. So we didn't think the S and P was going to rally to forty six hundred on the back of what was you know overly bearish sentiment. So that was a surprise to us, given the fact that you know the data really hadn't changed our view or our thesis on on uh, eventual recession. So it takes time. Yeah takes time yeah that you mentioned like that even the, just like how much it rallied surprised you um okay so we're equity markets we should also bring up credit markets as well would love to kind of hear more of um your your thoughts there um we can kind of like let you set the table when it comes to the credit markets what are you paying attention to most there yeah, well, you know, at, at Exonic, most of what we do is credit. And of course, we do have a, an opportunistic equity uh, portfolio as well. But, but we specialize in uh, structured credit. Uh, that's the, the, the vast majority of what we do. And we also do some corporate credit as well. And, and of course, now, you know, if we talk about uh, corporate high yield markets, which are a nice proxy to sort of get the conversation around credit going, you know, I think CDX high yield um, right now is around 420 or 430 uh, on a spread basis and, um, you know, got as tight as about 405 to 410 earlier in the year. So it's actually a little wider now. I take that back. It's around 460. Um, so we've seen a bit of a widening this year in credit markets as well. Um, if a recession view ends up panning out, which it may or may not, but if, if our view is, is correct, and during recessions, you know, you see credit spreads widen to, you know, I mean, if it's not the GFC, right? Like, let's, let's call it an average of 800 basis points to 1,200 basis points. And so, you know, that would sort of be our, if the recession is our base, if a recession is our base case into the end of this year, then that would be, we we think that high yield credit spreads would, uh, you know, be the path towards those 800 to 1200 wides, which is, is quite a move from here, obviously. Um, that has not happened so far, but that 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 would correspond to a default cycle where you're seeing 8 to 10% uh, default right rates um, overall. Uh, default rates have been picking up. Uh, and in particular, they've been picking up in the middle market loan, in the middle market lending space. Um, so we're particularly concerned about some of the more marginal BDC companies, uh, business development companies that tend to make middle market loans to companies that can't get financed uh, through more traditional channels. Um, and we're starting to see cracks in the foundation in the middle market loan uh, space and default rates have actually ticked up faster there than anywhere else. And interestingly, and I'd be remiss for not saying this, you know, we moved... Uh, much of our portfolio, especially in CMBS, into higher parts of the capital structure, um, where uh, interestingly, you know, we can get eight to ten percent um, uh, yield uh, with real collateral underlying um, uh, the the debt that we're buying. And if you looked at corporate credit markets, and we can do this by the way, relatively near dated, you know, two three years. Whereas to get that in the corporate credit markets, you really have to to look at unsecured bonds, and you'd have to look at you know five plus year duration to get that that same that same yield at a corporate credit. So 
We're not big fans of corporate credit here, given the risks we see to the economy, especially unsecured high yield. Uh, we think it's going to widen further um, and and provide opportunity down the road, but just not quite yet. And we're seeing the opportunity in higher parts of the capital structure um, in uh, structured credit securitization. Yeah. Okay. Um, I do want to hear more on that, like the opportunities. I just took a bunch of notes. You're talking about um, that 8 to 10% yield um, in the higher parts of the capital structure of CMBS with real collateral underlying the can you explain like kind of can you kind of I know it's a big market too. Can you kind of explain what's happening in CMBS um and why I mean I get the focus there but can you just help us understand what's going on within that space too? Well it's a, it's a very it's a very sort of broad category. Um and there are there are there are things within CMBS that we like. Uh, quite a bit. And then there are things that we have stayed away from. Um, as a firm, uh, you know, we have been bearish of, of, of office for some time. And we have very, very little exposure directly or indirectly through CMVS um, to, to office, uh, probably less than 2% of our portfolio. Um, we think though, frankly, and we're raising a fund to take advantage of it, we think there is going to be a tremendous amount of opportunity in commercial real estate both through uh, single asset, single bar- borrower securitizations, your SASBs, but also direct loans within commercial real estate, within the commercial real estate market. So, you know, fortunately, we've kept our noses clean, sort of waiting for this opportunity. And our head of credit here, Matt Weinstein, is it's something that he uh, has done throughout his career. So we're really ready um, to, to take advantage of that opportunity. You know, commercial real estate, you know, we, we think there's oversupply. Uh, you know, and that's going to last for, for a little while. It feels like, frankly, a little bit, and it's not completely analogous, analogous so I don't want to over, I don't want to overstate it, but it feels a little bit like the oversupply in the housing market previous to the great financial crisis. I'm not saying we're going to have a great financial crisis, but my point is when you have that much oversupply um, in the face of some sort of a secular change, which I think we got the pandemic and work from home um, and four-day work weeks, you know, there's got to be a repricing there. And I think we've seen the beginnings of that repricing, but not the entire repricing. Um, and lastly, along those lines, what I would say is um, the failure of several regional banks will also impact the amount of capital available in um, the commercial real estate space because it was quite reliant on regional bank funding, which is an opportunity for us because we're Part of what we do is non-bank lending um, in situations where you know a, a bank, especially now, would not be willing to step in. And and you know capital requirements and and regulatory scrutiny for regional banks in particular um, are are going to go nowhere but up and higher. So so in terms of scrutiny, higher scrutiny. Um, so that that I think is an, is an opportunity for us, but it's not yet quite time. Right now, we're moving up the cap stacks within uh, within structured credit credit uh, securitizations, and um, waiting for the opportunity to buy more fulcrum like securities when spreads widen more. And that would be like like in the kind of like recessionary environment where you would see the widening of the spreads. That's right. Yep, yeah. Exactly. Okay. So that's one of like, there's like, a, that's, I take it that's one of the vulnerabilities like in the, like 
you're in the recession camp, you see that area is one of the vulnerabilities. Yeah, also an opportunity once you get there. Um, so what are the other, like if you kind of step back and think about it, what are some of the other areas of vulnerability that you're seeing or keeping an eye on? Yeah, well, we talked about the consumer and the fact that, um, you know, that 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 savings are now at, at you know, 2015, 2016 levels um, and that credit card usage has, has gone up. Um, auto loan delinquencies are now at, uh, you know, GFC kind of levels. So there's the vulnerability to the consumer. There's the vulnerability to the middle market buyers, which were already bar- borrowers, pardon me. That we're already seeing that is is you know smaller corporations that can't access uh, corporate bond markets or equity mar- or public equity markets, um, you know, and and there are a number of companies that have taken out uh, loans during the pandemic, either using pandemic uh, era programs or otherwise, that are starting to feel um, refinancing stress. I mean, we just saw yellow uh, freight. Uh, go bankrupt. And it's going to provide a great opportunity for some of its competitors to pick up um, really valuable assets and terminals, which are in short supply. Um, and and Yellow is well positioned within in, in uh, various networks. So we're seeing um, SDs and others uh, bid, I think, uh, Old Dominion actually uh, top, top the, the SDs bid, if I, if I recall correctly. But, but I think, you know, uh, transportation, and trucking with uh, LTL volumes continuing to fall, there's some vulnerabilities there, which again, that's uh, that's good news for some and, and bad news for others. But Yellow in particular had a, a large um, pandemic year alone that it uh, turns out it wasn't really qualified to have and was is being forced to pay back by the government. And and you know I, I'm guessing that that they're not alone. Uh, and from the perspective of companies that took out a lot of debt during the pandemic, um, you know, there are a lot of zombie companies out uh-huh. there and I'm not going to mention uh, too many names here, but uh, in in travel and leisure, for example, um, that I think are going to have trouble servicing their debt uh, over the next, you know, year to five years. Well, you won't mention the names. <laughs> Okay, you you got you. That's okay. We could probably figure it out. You know, you know, who I had on the show recently um, was Dr. Ed Altman, creator of the Z Score, talking oh, yeah. about zombie companies. But this is okay. This is interesting to me. I I like this topic um, because there's like the old adage: when the tide goes out, you find out who's swimming naked. And imagine there are a lot of zombies right. that have been propped up by some of these policies. Yeah. Do you ever like? I don't know. Maybe you said it earlier. Do you have like? ballpark or an estimate of like like what we could see in terms of defaults or the risk there for some of these companies yeah i don't have a dollar amount um at the top of my head or front of mind we we do have that number my analysts have uh have have done that for me um but again i think it's probably sort of looks like your bread and butter default cycle where you're looking at an 8 to 10% default rate within the you know within the high yield universe um but the 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 risk frankly is to a little bit of a higher default rate i would think because um when you think about where refinancing goes refinancing costs go on resets and the fact that there really is a 25 26 maturity wall which in a higher rate environment, 
um, no longer gets extended and amended the way we've gotten used to. So just to take a step back on that point, right? what we've gotten used to over the past decade or so in a low-rate environment is companies that have you know struggled to perform have gotten sort of a um, a little bit of a pass, right? And they've gotten a pass from the fact that interest rates have been trending lower. And in fact, we can take an even further step back and say, okay, let's go back to 1982 when 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 Paul Volcker decided that it was time to cut interest rates after sort of beating inflation, right? We've had a secular bull market in bonds ever since. Interest rates have been going lower and lower and lower still. So within a long-term deck down secular downtrend in rates to the zero bound eventually, which we hit, you know, a few years ago. Of course, we've had the Fed hike and cut within that, but the peak interest rate on the Fed hiking cycles has always been lower in the subsequent cycle. And the same thing with the trough, meaning that on average, interest rates have been trending lower over time. We're no longer really in that situation. We've, we've for the first time since you know, the late 1970s, where, where we had the, the Fed had to hike because of inflation, not because of, you know, overheating growth. And that's a very, very different paradigm for, for the Fed. So what companies benefited from was that secular decline in interest rates and a, and a secularly declining cost of overall capital, right? It's assuming credit spreads remain the same. You've got your, your your cost of capital, which is your benchmark rate plus spread to compensate for credit risk on an individual company basis. So, so when you when you look at it that way, that sort of of pass, if you will, for underperforming companies is no longer as readily available. And you know, and we're looking at one uh, consumer uh, lender right now that has a 24, 25 maturity wall, uh, which is quite large, and currently their average coupon. Is about you know seven seven and a half percent. If they were to go to market and have to refinance that today, it would be closer to ten to ten and a half. So that's a considerable that's a considerable amount of additional interest expense um, for that company when it goes to refinance that that debt. Uh, so so those sorts of companies and there are there there are a number of them um, are. At risk and certainly, uh, you know, of of concern. And I think that was your question. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so I do want to bring up the the Fed with you as well, um, and um, the historically elevated federal funds rate in the event of a recession. I mean, okay. So do you think? Okay, well, I don't know. Do you, I? Will they cut? Do you think they'll cut, or are we hire for longer until we get? A recession? Do you have some sort of an outlook on the Fed um, mm-hmm. here? Yes, for sure. You, you know, at the end of the day, whenever you kind of are in our business, right, analyzing markets, you, you you sort of have to start with the central bank. You have to say, okay, you know, you have to start with rates, and and within rates, you start with the central bank um, because when we think about the term structure of interest rates, um, you know. The, the X the when you look at that you know if you're gonna if you're gonna prognosticate on what you think the 10-year yield is going to be you have to think about what the path of Fed rates are because the 10-year the term structure of interest rates is basically baking in the uncertainty around the future path of Fed rate, of, of short rate 
rates, right? Because that's what long rates are. The geometric average of short rates over time and term structure compensates for uncertainty of the path of short rates over time based on several factors, including inflation and growth. So that's sort of counterintuitive to the like, you know, Irving Fisher, you know, nominal rates equal real rates plus inflation. But that's that's a much longer conversation, I think. Um, so so what might the Fed do? As I mentioned, it was it was a good next question. Um, but but you know, the Fed has been hiking because of inflation and not because of overheating growth. So that puts him in a pretty hairy position where no Fed after the Arthur Burns Fed wants to be the Arthur Burns Fed. And um, you know, so so therefore, you know, there's an aversion to uh, the idea that the Fed might cut too soon. And so I think higher for longer is a real thing. And even when you look at the new sort of social considerations that have baked into the Fed since that period of time for employment, the Fed recognizes that inflation is a regressive tax on lower earners. And so the Fed really does want to kill inflation. And I, and I think rightly so, right? That That's part of their dual mandate. It's inflation and growth. And if you have inflation, um, you can't get real earning. You can't get, pardon me, you can't re- real income growth, um, especially in uh, cohorts for the low, for lower earners. So, um, you know, where 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 more of their disposable income uh, goes to necessities, uh, especially so when you have food and energy inflation, it's difficult. So I think, and that's the other part of it, right? The Fed is in a difficult spot because. To a large extent, um, energy prices are out of its control. Food scarcity is out of its control. We, we have we started with a pandemic. One of the reasons why we we kind of successfully, um, along with your friend Nuriel Rabini, uh, actually actually co-authored a piece with him on this. Um, he and his and his colleague Brunello uh, Rosa. Um, but but one of the reasons we got ahead of inflation when everyone thought it was still transitory is because we looked at the pandemic and the paradigm and context of a war where you had um, massive deficit spending. In the case of a war, that's to fund the war effort, right? In the case of the pandemic, it was to stimulate the economy to, to, to uh, combat another kind of, of assailant, the virus, right? And, and you also had supply chain disruptions, which you also get during. So I think that in the absence of the war in Ukraine, the inflation probably would have fallen more quickly. But the war in Ukraine then disrupted food supplies and energy supplies in both Europe and globally in the oil markets. Probably not as much, frankly, as we thought the disruption would be, um, because obviously, you know, uh, Russia is now shipping its oil to China and other places and getting around sanctions and sanctions in various ways. But but food price inflation is is clearly still extant, um, and especially in Europe and Africa, and in in other parts of the world that depend on Ukrainian grain supply. So, so the Fed can't control those things. It's only certain things the Fed can control. So I think higher for longer is a real thing. But I think there are new Fed members like Goolsby and others who are really concerned that if the Fed doesn't pause, it could overshoot. And so, um, with some of the more hawkish members no longer on the Fed uh, relative to when this hiking cycle started, the um, I think the idea is higher for longer, uh, but but 
if the recession call is right, the Fed will probably have to cut sooner. Which brings me kind of to the last point along this, uh, along these lines, which is, to me, yes, inflation is still a paramount consideration for the Fed. But the other thing, and the Fed discusses this, is the long and variable lags question, right? That they that term is used for for like a reason, right? So it's it's used because the lags tend to be long and they tend to be variable, so you don't really know how long they're going to take to kick in especially in this situation where you had all the pandemic stimulus, which extended the life of the cycle, if you will, the virtuous cycle. And so I think the fear is, and it's my concern as well, that growth falls off a quick, very, very quickly as that pandemic era stimulus has burned off. And it's a little bit like Wiley I, Wiley E. Coyote, if you remember those cartoons, you know, like he runs off the cliff and then he looks down and he goes, uh-oh, and then it's shh. And so I think the Fed's concerned about that, and and we're a little concerned about that, um, g- given the rate of change in various statistics that we're observing in the face of what has been very very strong consumption and and uh, corporate performance. And then maybe on lastly on that, when we look at corporate performance, we are seeing chinks in the armor there, right? We've had now two consecutive quarters of negative earning earnings growth for the S and P five hundred. That's a lot worse for smaller companies. So I think the Fed is also watching the corporate earnings picture. Yeah. Peter, I have to say, I love having you on and I love having like this amount of time. I actually wish I had even more time with you because this is fascinating. I took so many notes and I was learning along the way. So you are also not only um, a great researcher and all things macro, you also help all of us learn. And I really appreciate that. I want to pass it back to you for any parting thoughts. Um, let folks know where they can um, maybe find you or follow you on social media, where they can learn more about the work that you're doing at Exonic. Also, um, just anything that's top of mind for you that we didn't bring up in this conversation, please take the next few minutes to do so. Well, thanks, Julie. And, and it's a pleasure to be here. And it's a, and it's a, it's a pleasure to do this interview with you. Um, I'm, I'm glad you've, uh, I'm glad you're doing this. I love, I love your, uh, the, the Julia LaRoche show in, in the background. It looks great. Thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, you can find Axonic obviously uh, uh, on the web, um, Axonic Capital. Um, I have a LinkedIn page. I don't do much more social media than that by design because I like to spend my time reading, researching, and trying to figure things out, not posting on social media. It's probably a failing of mine. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I, I um, we, we obviously, at Axonic, uh, we have a mutual fund uh, as well, um, Axix, the ticker. Um, and so we can be found, uh, you can invest in structured credit. Public market participants can have access to structured credit through that, through that mutual fund. Peter Cicchini, uh, Director of Research at Exonic Capital. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time and your ideas. And great to see you as always. Thanks again, Peter. I really appreciate you. Great. Thank you, Julia. Thanks. Great to see you.